Here is Hanukkah in some rabbinic texts that I'm going to share with you, which will be interesting because part of this story of Hanukkah, which you probably, many of you have already learned, but part of the story of Hanukkah is that nobody knew what it was. And the rabbis, for hundreds of years, literally didn't really know why they were doing, what they were doing, what they should be doing, how many people, what we should be doing, how many days it is, why do we celebrate Hanukkah the way it is, which is why my number one quote from the Talmud, from the tractate Shabbat, it says the Gemara, which is the the rabbis of the Talmud, ask the question, my Hanukkah, what is Hanukkah? What do you mean? By the time the Talmud was written, which is this Talmud, the Babylonian Talmud, was finished in the year 500 of the Common Era, 500 plus 6, when did Hanukkah take place? In about 165 BCE. So therefore, 600 years after Hanukkah took place, allegedly, they were still asking, what's Hanukkah? If they didn't know, how are we supposed to know? So they said, by Hanukkah, what's Hanukkah? And they answered, uh, oh, and they asked, and why are lights kindled on Hanukkah? Imagine, these are the rabbis of the Talmud asking each other, why, why are we doing what we're doing? And then they answered by quoting another book called Megillat Ta'anit. The sages taught in Megillat Ta'anit on the 25th day of Kislev, the days of Hanukkah are eight, which is why Hanukkah starts on the 25th of Kislev, and then we celebrate for eight days, but that didn't tell you anything. What did that tell you? All it told you was they quote some other book, Megillat Ta'anit, and they say Megillat Ta'anit which is a first century, written in the first century, of the Common Era in Israel, as you'll see in a second. In there, they tell us Hanukkah's eight days. So I guess Hanukkah must be for eight days. What they didn't quote is the books of the Maccabees. Books of the Maccabees, second, there's first and second Maccabees. What's interesting was I was talking with the Monsignor, Liam Kidney, of Corpus Christi Church today, and he was asking me, is the book of Maccabees a part of the Jewish Bible? And I would give you a pop quiz, except for it doesn't work very well on Zoom like this. So I'll just give, I'll ask the questions and give the same, give the answers. So I told him, no, the books of the Maccabees are not included in the Jewish Bible, what we call the Tanakh in Hebrew. It, it's in the Apocrypha. It, the book of the Maccabees are extra biblical, sacred, with a little less sacredness, than the Jewish Bible. He says that's interesting because Maccabees are included in the Catholic version of the Bible. We take them as, they're just included as a part of the Bible for us, equally sacred with every, everything else. Now, what's interesting is, if you ask the question, which I'm asking, why do we celebrate Hanukkah for eight nights? What does it say in Maccabees, which is the other oldest text we have, written approximately 124 BCE, before the Common Era. It was written in Greek, probably in Alexandria, not in Israel, but in Egypt. And here's what it says. You can read it yourself. The sanctuary was pure. This, this is the end of a little section about after the Maccabees win. It says, the sanctuary was purified on the 25th day of Kislev. This joyful celebration went on for eight days. Why, according to Second Maccabees, it was like Sukkot. Everybody remembers Sukkot. That happens earlier in the year. For they recalled how only a short time ago, in the fall, they had kept the festival of Sukkot while living like animals in the mountains. 
And so they carried lulavim and etrogim. They carried the lulav and the etrog that you're supposed to shake for eight days of Sukkot. And they chanted hymns to God who had triumphantly led them to the purification of the temple. They reenacted Sukkot. A measure was passed by the public assembly that entire that the entire Jewish people should observe observe these days every year. So, interestingly enough, according to Second Maccabees, which was written in Egypt around 124 BCE, which was the closest to when the the actual Hanukkah events of the Maccabees actually took place, which was around 165 BCE. They said the reason that we celebrated for eight days is because we're imitating Sukkot, because we didn't get to do Sukkot, because we were in hiding, because we were fighting, we were having, there was a war going on, and we didn't get to celebrate Sukkot, which is one of the three major festivals of the year, Sukkot, Pesach, and Shavuot. And that's why we celebrate Hanukkah for eight days. So, around 200 of the common era, there was a uh, midrash, midrashic text called the Pesik the Rabati, written in Hebrew in Israel. And once again, the question comes up, why are the lights kindled during Hanukkah, they ask? Why are there lights? And their answer was, hmm, the time the sons of Hashmon, that's the Maccabees, triumphed over the kingdom of Greece, they entered the temple and they found their eight spears of iron, which they grooved out, poured in oil, and kindled wicks. And therefore, since they found these spears and they lit them as a celebration, and there were eight of them, according to the rest of this text, therefore they decided they should celebrate Hanukkah for eight days every year. Well, that's two different versions of why we celebrate Hanukkah for eight days. Oh, you remember Megillah Ta'anit. That's what the Talmud made reference to. So here it is, Megillah Ta'anit, written around the first century of the Common Era. And in Megillah Ta'anit was an interesting, kind of obscure little document that no one's sure exactly who wrote it, but it's a collection of all the fast days in Israel, major and minor. It was a collection of things that whoever put it together, days they thought we should commemorate during the course of the year, because Ta'anit are fast. And here it says, on the 25th of the month is Hanukkah, eight days on which one does not eulogize, because when the Greeks entered the temple, they defiled all the oil there. When the hand of the Hashmonians, that's the Maccabees, was made strong and they defeat the Greeks, they checked in the temple and they only found one jar of oil, sealed with the mark of the high priest, which remained undefiled. Though there was only enough in it to light for one day, a miracle occurred through it, and they lit the temple lamps from it for eight days. In the following year, they decreed, these to be eight days of celebration. Ah, so somewhere in the first century of the Common Era, which is quite a bit later after the event took place, some unknown writer added this story that becomes the story that then the rabbis of the Talmud start quoting over and over and over again, ah, this little cruise of oil that was supposed to last for one day, but instead ended up lasting for eight days, and that's why we light lights, and that's why we celebrate it for eight days. Well, maybe. But then, why up here, in number one, were the rabbis asking, what's Hanukkah? 
by the year 500, they still were wrestling with the question, why do we do it? How do we do it? What, what does the light symbolize? How are we supposed to light these lights? And here we get a series of discussions and arguments and different opinions about why we're doing what we're doing and how we should do it. In the tractate Shabbat, it says, the sages taught in a baraita. Baraita is, the, is a rabbinic word for an, sort of an extra little commentary that they bring into the Talmud. That the basic mitzvah of Hanukkah is each day to have a light kindled by a person, the head of the household, for himself and his household. They assumed the head of the household was a man, and they said, the mitzvah of Hanukkah is simply to light a light, a light every day. And the mehadrin, meaning, mehadrin is a Hebrew word that means those who are particularly meticulous, i.e. those who are meticulous in the performing of the mitzvah, kindle a light for each and every one in the household. So if you have four of you in the household, they light four lights that night, every every night. And then it adds, ah, but the mehadrin, mean mehadrin, the most meticulous people, adjust the number of lights daily, and then they quote that, most famous argument in the whole Talmud about Hanukkah. Beit Shammai, that is, and Beit Hillel disagree. That's the house of Shammai and the house of Hillel. The school of Shammai and the school of Hillel disagree as to the nature of that adjustment. Beit Shammai, the house of Shammai, as most of you know, says, on the first day, you put eight lights in. And thereafter, they are gradually reduced. And Beit Hillel says, on the first day, one is lit. And therefore, they are progressively increased. In this particular passage, it doesn't say why. So we'll hold on to that for a moment. Shammai said, look, there's eight days. It's the first night. We still have eight days left. So we'll put eight, eight days, eight candles in. And the next day, there's only seven days left. So we'll have put seven candles in. And the next day, there's only six days left. So we'll put six candles in. And Hillel says, no, no, no. Put one in, and then day two we'll put two in, and day three we'll put three in. And obviously we know who won, because any of you who've ever been in the Talmud class before know that whenever there's an argument between Hillel and Shammai, Hillel always wins. It's like just the way it works. Hillel always wins. So Hillel wins here too, and that's the way we do it. We put in one, then we put in two, and by tonight's the sixth night, we have all six candles in. In the meantime... Here we have another section from the Talmud having the same conversation. It says, Ula, who's a rabbi, said there were two Amorayim in the West, that is, there were two uh, rabbis in the West. In, in the West means Eretz Israel, because where are they who are writing this? They're in Babylonia. This, that's why it's called the Babylonian Talmud. They're in Iraq somewhere. They're in Babylonia, and they're talking about people in Israel. When they talk about the West, they're referring to Israel. So there were two rabbis in the West, in Eretz Israel, in the land of Israel, who disagreed with regard to this dispute. Rabbi Yossi bar Avin and Rabbi Yossi bar Zavida, both of them named Yossi. One said that the reason for Beit Shammai's opinion is that the number of lights corresponds to the incoming days, that is, the future. On the first day, eight days remain in Hanukkah, like I said. One kindles eight lights. On the second day, seven days remain. One kindles seven. And the reason for Beit Hillel's opinion is that the number of lights correspond to the outgoing days. Each day, the number of lights corresponds to the number of days of Hanukkah that were already observed. 
And one said that the reason for Beit Shammai's, the other, they're having an argument. The reason for Beit Shammai's opinion is that the number of lights correspond to the bulls of the festival of Sukkot. Now, you remember, I was just talking about Sukkot. The most original commentary on why we celebrate Hanukkah for eight nights is we are recreating Sukkot because we didn't get to do it because we were out fighting those evil, you know, Greek soldiers. And in the Torah, when you read in the book of Numbers, chapter 29, verse 12 to 31, we have the description of what you're supposed to, how you're supposed to celebrate Sukkot in biblical times. And you do it with sacrifices. Because in biblical times, of course, we were a temple-based sacrificial cult, religion. So, in Beit Shammai's opinion, the, the lights correspond to the bulls that were offered as sacrifices on the festival of Sukkot. Thirteen were sacrificed on the first day, and each succeeding day, one fewer was sacrificed. And so, according to this rabbi, first Yossi, Shammai was trying to recreate a version of Sukkot just without the sacrifices, using the lights, because they're supposed to light lights. Just like they reduced, they started with a full 13, and they reduced the number of sacrifices every day. So too, Shammai said, we should do that with the lights. We'll start with a full panoply of lights, and we'll reduce it every day. The reason for Beit Hillel's opinion is that the number of lights is based on the principle that one elevates to a higher level in matters of sanctity. One does not diminish sanctity. Therefore, if the objective is to have the number of lights correspond to the number of days, there's no alternative to increasing their number with the passing of each day. And ultimately, that's the version that the rabbis adopted. Ma'alin al-Hakodesh, they say in Hebrew. We always add to the holy. We always add to the sacred. And since light is a symbol of holiness and a symbol of divinity, we don't want to start with a full uh, Hanukkah of holiness and then diminish our holiness every night so we only end up with one candle. Instead, we want to constantly be symbolizing our challenge to increase the lights of Hanukkah, to increase the lights of holiness in how we react every day, how we act in our lives. So, some more texts. Mishnah Torah. Who wrote the Mishnah Torah? Oh, I forgot. I was supposed to answer my own questions. The Mishnah Torah was, was written by Maimonides, Moses Maimonides, in Egypt, 12th century. And Maimonides wrote the Mishnah Torah. It was his way of taking all of the 20 volumes of Talmud and reducing them to what he thought was the most important parts. That's really what the Mishnah Torah is. Mishnah Torah means sort of the repetition of the Torah in his mind, in Maimonides. Maimonides' version of Torah, meaning the teachings that he thought were most important. So rather than going back and forth with all of these arguments that the Talmud, with the reason the Talmud is 20 volumes, of course, is because it includes all the arguments. Oh, and by the way, as some of you know, I think I mentioned it last month when I did my Torah study, my Talmud study, that the re- one of the reasons that the rabbis give as to why Hillel always wins when it's a battle between Hillel and Shammai is because of the kavod, the respect that Hillel constantly demonstrated to Shammai. I mean, look, we know what's been going on in, the, in our political world with all of this post-election drama 
and the Republicans and the Democrats and all that stuff. I'm not going to get into the politics, except for if there's one thing that's universal, that's universally upsetting in America, it's the, the, what we are all perceiving in so many different areas of our lives, and particularly in Congress, and particularly in politics, these tremendous disparities and inability of people to work together. That somehow their label, I'm a Republican, I'm a Democrat, I'm a whatever, is somehow preventing them from reaching across the aisle and working together. Um, and that's exactly what the rabbis commented about Hillel and Shammai. They said that every time in lengthy conversations and arguments between the house of and the school of Shammai and the school of Hillel, Hillel would always demand that his students articulate the arguments and the discussions of Shammai first. And then they were allowed to bring whatever counter-arguments or discussion that they had because he wanted to make sure that we continued to have kavod, we had honor and respect and dignity for one another even when we disagree. We should only elect Hillel's into our Congress and we wouldn't have this problem anymore. But it was a, it's a great lesson. It's a great reminder to us. You know, the, the, the Talmud talks about different kinds of arguments, arguments of the Shem Shemayim, arguments for the sake of holiness, for the, for, it, that honor God's, na- God's name and, uh, and arguments that diminish God's name. And they point to the arguments, the discussions and the differences between Hillel and Shammai as the kind of disagreements and arguments uh, that honor God's name, that in fact bring more light into the world. And that's the kind of arguments people should have. And in fact, it becomes, as many of you know, the model of Talmud study up to this very day. The model of Talmud study is chevruta, is that you have two people, you put two people together, and they study together any of the texts that they're studying so that they could argue, they could discuss, and ideally, in the argument, they hone each other's minds and they bring greater light and revelation to the discussion that they bring, that it's always better to have someone with whom you interact when you are discussing, when you are arguing, when you're trying to learn something, rather than just learning on your own. That's been the model, the number one model of Jewish learning for hundreds and hundreds of thousands now of years. Um, And it's a pretty good one. It's sort of the mentor model, but it's more than the mentor model. It's the cooperation model. The idea is that, that two people bring greater light by lighting each other. So in the Mishnah Torah, which is where I'm starting with this, Maimonides says, how many lamps should one light on Hanukkah? It's a mitzvah, it's a commandment that one light, one light be kindled in each and every house, whether it's a household of many people or a house with a single person. Now, this is already the 12th century. Remember, look at how our traditions and customs evolve and change over time to be suddenly what we all think is the only way to do it. There's the right way to do it. Well, you know, the right way emerges out of the real lives of people, of our community. So, he says, in the 12th century, it's a mitzvah to, to that one light be kindled in each and every house, whether it be a household with many people or a house with a single person. Then he says, this is an echo of an earlier text, obviously, which I read to you before, one who enhances the commandment should light lamps according to the number of people in the house. So, got six people in your house? Light six lamps. 
a lamp for each and every person, whether they are men or women. This was an innovation already. This was an articulation of the fact that women are also bound by the mitzvah. It's not just a mitzvah for men. It's a mitzvah for women and men, for everyone to be a part of this. This was back in the 12th century already. One who enhances it further, he's quoting in his own version of what we read earlier, then this performs the commandment in the choicest manner, lights a lamp for each person on the first night, and continues to add one lamp on each and every night. This is a lamp. But it wasn't a candle because they were talking about, about oil lamps. Don't forget, the, the ancient um, Hanukkah was a series of oil lamps. Some of you have oil lamps probably still in your own house. I used to have one that I got in Jerusalem in my first year of living in Israel. And you put you know oil, olive oil in and you light the lamp. And you add oil every night. <clears throat> and you really get to have the experience of what original Hanukkah was sort of all about rather than wax candles. So they would do that, says it, the 12th century. By the time we get to the 16th century, we get to the Shulchan Aruch. Any of you have heard of the Shulchan Aruch before? The Shulchan Aruch is, was written in Israel in Sfat by Joseph Caro. And the Shulchan Aruch what became the definitive statement about Jewish law after this. But the Shulchan Aruch originally was Joseph Caro's attempt to do the same thing that Moses Maimonides did, which is to take the entire 20 volumes of Talmud and reduce them just to the laws. What are the things we have to do? Because people didn't read 20 volumes of Talmud. They wanted to know, what am I supposed to do? How am I supposed to do it? And so Caro was the first to really, after uh, Maimonides, to do an even more succinct job of lifting out of all of the 20 volumes of Talmud exactly how you're supposed to do all of the laws, how you're supposed to follow the, the legal parts of the Talmud. Because as most of you know, you remember from the previous classes, the Talmud is, is made up of two different kinds of conversations. Uh, one conversation is, is legal and is halakha, the legal part, and the other conversation is agadah, which is the, the drash, the midrash part, the stories that people tell. Like the story that I just read about the little cruise of oil, which lasted for eight days. That's not a legal statement. That's a made-up statement that someone made up over a hundred years after the event took place to explain why the event, the event took place. It's similar to one that I always talk about, I think I did last time, about the famous story of, you know, Abraham and the, and the idols, and I, I shared that last month, that it's not a, a, a legal text, it's, you know, Abraham breaking his father's idols and calling his father out for worshiping something that he just made by with his own hands. That's in the Talmud, that it's part of the Agadah, the Drash part of the Talmud. So the Shulchan Aruch was Joseph Caro's attempt at trying to take just the legal parts. What are we supposed to do and how are we supposed to do it? And here's what he said. Two different sections. One should place the Hanukkah light at the entrance, which adjoins the public domain on the outside. Why? Because by the time he was writing the Shulchan Aruch, the, con the mitzvah of lighting the Hanukkah light was not just about lighting the light. It was, in the rabbi's words, lefarsem etanes, 
the purpose of lighting the light is to publicize the miracle. And then we get into the question of what's the miracle? It's because it's to publicize the miracle that the rabbis made up the story of the little cruise of oil that lasted for eight days and, and decided that's the miracle. But we know what the real miracle was. So what's the miracle? The real miracle is that the smaller band of Maccabees overcame the larger army of the Syrian Greek army and was the first recorded struggle for religious freedom. That's the real miracle, that we were willing to lay our lives down to fight for religious freedom, and we won. We were able to do that. So in the Shulchan Aruch, Joseph Carroll writes, one should place the Hanukkah light at the entrance, which adjoins the public domain on the outside. If the house opens to the public domain, you should place it at its entrance. Why? Because the idea is to publicize the miracle. How can you publicize it unless you put it somewhere where people can see? Remember, if there's a courtyard in the front of the house, then you should place it at the entrance of the courtyard. Because the whole idea is for people walking by outside of your house to see the lights. That's the whole purpose of lighting these lights, is to literally let people who are outside of your house see it. If he lives on the upper floor, having no entrance leading to the public domain, he should place it at a window that adjoins the public domain. So if you happen to live upstairs, you don't live downstairs, you, you don't have any permission to put anything out there, you stick it in your window so that when people walk by, they can say, oh, there's Hanukkah lights, there's the pub, and they can remember that this is Hanukkah and remember about the miracle. You should place it in a window that adjoins the public domain. However, <clears throat> one of my favorite statements in the Shulchan Aruch, also it's, uh, taken from the Talmud, in the time of danger, one, when one is not allowed to perform mitzvot, it's enough that he place it on his table inside. What does he mean by a time of danger? Lots of times during Jewish life, during Jewish history, we have been at the mercy, particularly those of us, remember this was, was <clears throat> written already in the 16th century, we had been in exile we have been in the diaspora all over the world already at the, at the mercy of the Tsar of Russia, at the mercy of the king of, and queen of France, of Spain, of, and the local bully in every little community where we happen to live. And from time to time and from era to era and from country to country and from city to city, we were forbidden to practice Judaism, and we had to hide that we were Jewish. You can think of what we call the Moranos, but we can think of the, the expulsion from Spain and Portugal and all these other places. You can think of all the times when to publicly demonstrate that you were shown that you were Jewish, put your very life in danger, and here we have a rise in anti-Semitism once again in America and throughout the world where not only are people spray-painting in swastikas places, but people are attacking literally. It was just recently the one-year anniversary of the murders in the synagogue, the Eitz Chaim synagogue in Philadelphia. You know, it's still to this very day in the 21st century, there are times and there are places where it's literally dangerous for your life to be publicly Jewish. Yes, we need to constantly fight against that and stand up against that. Joseph Caro said, in a, public, in a time of danger, 
when it would put your life at risk to show the world that you are Jewish, you still do the, fulfill the mitzvah of lighting the light, but you keep it inside. Keep it somewhere where people don't see it. Um, because of the principle, which I know you all know, of pikuach nefesh, of the saving of life, that the rabbis consistently, in every way possible, always insisted that pikuach pikuach nefesh, that the saving of life was more important than any other mitzvah, and that it takes precedence over all the other mitzvot, over Shabbat, over whatever, that you violate whatever mitzvah you need to do in order for the preciousness of saving life. So, he also, in the Shulchan Aruch, this legal document that became, for all the Orthodox Jews of the world, the definitive document that says how you're supposed to act as a Jew, he said if one didn't light with sunset, that is, you forgot, oh, I forgot to light the Hanukkah lights, or on purpose, you should still go ahead and light it. Just because the sun went down doesn't mean you should, you should light. It's not like Shabbat. And tell people, and you should light it until people stop passing through the marketplace, which is approximately half an hour after dark, because then people are passing and coming home, and they still see the miracle being publicized. Therefore, one must place enough oil in your lamp so that it will last at least a half an hour after it gets dark. You know, and if you put more oil in, you can extinguish the candle after the time has passed. Interesting. You're not allowed to, to snuff out Shabbat lights, according to Jewish law. But according to the Shulchan Aruch, if you put a lot of oil in to make sure that you have enough light, and it's, all, it's more than a half an hour after dark, meaning everybody should be home. You know, they didn't have street lights the same way by the time this was happening. And everybody was through the marketplace, and there was no one else left to see the publicizing the miracle. You could put the light out to save the oil, and then you could use the light for something else. Why does he say that? Because also in the Talmud, there's a conversation about, can you use the light of Hanukkah to light something else? And the answer is no. You're supposed to let them just be Hanukkah lights. But the Shulchan Aruch came along in the 16th century and said, well, not exactly. Once you fulfilled the real mitzvah, which isn't just lighting the light, it's publicizing the miracle. When you can't do that anymore because everyone's already home, then you can, if you need to use the light to light something else with, you can use the light after you've already fulfilled the real mitzvah, which is publicizing the miracle. Ah, Mishnah Torah. Back to Maimonides. Forgot I had this. Maimonides wrote the precept of lighting the Hanukkah lamp is exceedingly precious, and one should carefully observe it in order to acclaim the miracle, ever praising and thanking God for the miracles which he has performed for us, even if one has nothing to eat. Except what he gets from charity, he should borrow or sell his garment to buy oil and lamps and light them. See that if one has only one coin, and the Kiddush of Shabbat and the lighting of Hanukkah are before him, that is, you have to choose between lighting Hanukkah and, do, and saying Kiddush, because it's Shabbat, according to Maimonides, you should buy oil for lighting Hanukkah. That precedes and takes precedence over buying wine for Kiddush. But the publicizing of the miracle is more important. Why do you think? Oh, I forgot. I wasn't going to let you answer. So I get to answer. Why do you think? The answer is, this is like a rabbi's paradise. I get to ask the question and get my own answer. <laughs> the reason is Shabbat comes every week. Hanukkah doesn't come every week. 
You'll have next week you can light, you can say Kiddush. Next week you can light the lights. Next week you can eat challah if you're lucky. Next week you can perform that mitzvah of Kiddush, which is so important. But Hanukkah only comes once a year. So this is the only opportunity you'll have this day, which may fall on Hanukkah. Well, this Hanukkah, whenever it falls on Hanukkah, that night of Shabbat. It's the only time of the year, one time. So if you don't light it, you've missed the opportunity for the whole year. And the mitzvah, the farsemetanes, of raising up God's name, according to the rabbis, in praise of the miracle that God wrought for us, we say that blessing. We all said it together. God who made miracles for us in this season in those days. And that we remember that. Particularly, imagine, we're living all over the world. We're living under difficult times. We're living under dangerous times where we can't even put our Hanukkah in the window. You want to remind yourself, that, but remember, even when life was tough for the Maccabees, even when they were the minority, having to fight against the majority of the Syrian Greek army, which at the time was the most powerful army in the world, we remind ourselves that ultimately we survived. Just like we remind ourselves that when we went out of Egypt, that Egypt was the most powerful army in the world. And Bayad Chazakal was with a strong hand and an outstretched arm, God freed us from that hundreds of years of oppression. And with our holidays, that's why we all know the joke, you know, that every Jewish holiday, if they tried to kill us, we won, let's eat. Because in fact, that's what we remember. We remind ourselves over and over in every holiday, in every way we can, that even when things look tough, and they've looked tough for us forever, you know, I'm always counseling, as you know, I spend a lot of time with interfaith couples, written a bunch of books about interfaith life, and one of the things I'm always uh, reminding, particularly the non-Jewish partner who's choosing either to become Jewish or to marry uh, a Jewish person, is that what they're marrying into is a rather paranoid community. And we come by our paranoia honestly, you know, because we've had thousands of years of what's happening to us now, what's happening to us next. And so you may very likely find you're, you're marrying into a family or you're joining a people who are always turning around, looking over their shoulder, expecting to see an anti-Semite, you know, and always sort of looking for someone to prove that they're not because we have a lot of experiences of being kicked out of every country in Europe at one point or another. We have a lot of experiences and we carry the Holocaust in our genes, in our memory, in our collective memory. We celebrate these experiences. After all, every Passover, we literally recall that we were slaves and enslaved. Who does that? You know, we are one of the only communities, spiritual, religious civilizations on the planet, who remind ourselves of our ignominious past, that we were enslaved, because we use that as the beginning of the story, the end of which is always redemption. And that in order to be redeemed, you need to start somewhere. You know, you don't start with redemption. You start with challenge. You start with difficulty. You start with struggle. You start with pain. You start with having something to overcome to be redeemed and experience that redemption. And our holidays remind us of that. 
And our foods remind us of that. And our rituals remind us of that. And our games remind us of that. We play dreidel, a great miracle happens somewhere. Remind ourselves that there is always the miracle. The miracle of light that we bring and the miracle of being a minority and continuing to exist in a majority world. That here we are thousands of years later and we're still here. It's one of the things that Jews are always saying to each other. You know, look, everybody, these other civilizations rise and fall and somehow the evolving religious civilization of the Jewish people, as Mordecai Kaplan so appropriately said, Judaism is, we're still here. And we're here exactly because of why I was reading all these texts. Why? Because, oh, I'll read the last one. Because we've adapted and evolved always. Because we didn't have only one right way of doing things. We do things how they evolve throughout time. In the Talmud, Shabbat 22, it says, Rabbah, that's the name of Rabbi, said, it's, it's a mitzvah to place the Hanukkah lamp within the handbreadth entrance to the, uh, adjacent to the entrance. The Gemara, the other rabbis ask, where on which side does he place it? And there's a difference of opinion. Rav Acha, son of Rava, said, you place it on the right side of the entrance. And Rav Shmuel from Difti said, on the left. And the Halakha, that is the, of the decision of the rabbis, was with Rav Shmuel to place it on the left. Why? So that the Hanukkah lamp will be on the left and the mezuzah will be on the right and one who enters the house will be surrounded by mitzvot. i use this as the last one because I loved it. The whole idea of being surrounded by the mitzvot. You know, why do we place a, a mezuzah on our door? Place a mezuzah on our door, on the doorpost. How can you not remember and think about Passover and the miracle of our redemption when you if you touch a mezuzah on your doorposts every, every time you enter your house, you think about it because it's literally that reminder of the commandment in Exodus to place the blood on the doorposts of your house so that the angel of death can pass over our houses. And so that became a, an amulet, a symbol of God's presence. So we put the mezuzah on the doorposts of our house, angling in technically, traditionally, with the scroll of the Shema in there where it says, Al Mezuzot Beitecha, on the mezuzahs of your, the doorposts of your house, you place these words to remind you that this is like a sanctity of your home. It's like our own spiritual uh, safety system. You put the mezuzah on, and this aura of God's presence then surrounds your entire home. On Hanukkah, if you were the Hanukkah outside, like the other mitzvah was commanded, so the people could see, you would put it on the other side of your door, so that when you enter your house, you have mitzvah on all sides. So part of my challenge for you tonight is to think about ways that you could uh, surround yourself with mitzvah. So part of the challenge of Hanukkah is Think about ways that you can in your own life to uh, publicize. If you're going to publicize miracle, the miracles of your own life, whether it's your family, whether it's your, your, your personal relationships, whether it's something that you, would, you have from uh, work, from accomplishments you have. You know, Dee and I have been talking about doing how to marry your second husband first for 20 years. We finally decided, well, it's a pandemic. Let's do it now. We're sitting at home with each other anyway. We'll put it together and put it out in the world. 
just for the fun of it, because it's cute and fun. But, you know, uh, miracles come in every size. And what I love about Jewish tradition is we remind ourselves in so many little ways that we're surrounded by miracles. That we get up every morning and we say, Traditional Jews say this prayer every morning. You say, thank you, God, I woke up. It's like the miracle of opening your eyes because every day is, that's, it's like rebirth every day. How many times are we reborn? We're reborn every time we open our eyes. Where, you know, the Talmud says that sleep is one-sixtieth death because it's like, you know, you close your eyes, you don't know you're going to wake up in the morning. You close your eyes, no one does at any age, at every age, you know. And so every day is a celebration. Every day you go, ah, I get another chance. I get another free day. And you don't have to do anything to earn that free day. You didn't have to pass a test. You didn't have to demonstrate the kind of person you were. You just got handed a free day as the gift of life every single day of our lives as long as we're here. That, says the rabbis, is that the number one miracle of our lives is we look around and go, here I am. And everything that ever happened of any value in the world, every invention, here we're celebrating the fact that we're getting a vaccine, God willing, and you know, biotech companies willing, that we're going to get a vaccine eventually from this pandemic that might help us to not have to just do everything on Zoom. You know, that's a miracle. But every miracle that's happened in the world that anybody created happened in one or more of those free days that they got it was the first miracle of their day. And everything that we do and everything that we say happens in one of those miraculous gifts of a free day <clears throat> that we're given. And then, according to Jewish tradition, and most of you know this because I say it all the time, the second thing you're supposed to do is you're supposed to say a blessing about your body, physicality, you know, the physicality of your nefesh, of your body, that uh, it's the, what, there's no greater miracle than that this body is working and that I can stand up and walk away if I want, and that these hands are working. And most of the time, for most of us, we don't pay attention to our bodies until things stop working. You know, you stick your finger with a, with a pin, and suddenly your whole life becomes about your finger because it hurts, you know, or whatever, or whatever's going on with us. And we all have that experience. It's, it's not unique. We take for granted the things that are the everyday. And part of what Judaism's rituals, I believe, are all about, part of what lighting Hanukkah lights, the Farsemata nest to publicize the miracle, miracles, is to bring us into consciousness. And it's the consciousness of miracles, the consciousness of the miraculous in our everyday. And so the greatest opportunity, I think, for Hanukkah, when we light lights every single night and sing these blessings, we've made miracles for our ancestors, and that's this season, in those days, is to use it as an opportunity to identify, as I do every night, when I uh, write in my gratitude journal <clears throat> three things every night that I'm grateful for for that day, or people that I'm grateful for for that day, or whatever it is that I'm grateful for that day. This is an opportunity, and uh, I encourage you for the rest of Hanukkah, at least, if not for the rest of your lives, to use the opportunity to identify the miracles and the light <clears throat> that has, others have brought into your life, so you can be grateful for that, and the light that you can bring into others' lives.